my podcast, The Sergey Ross Show. I'm having a lot of fun with it, exploring mindsets of successful business leaders, routines, career decisions, their principles, what really drives them. And I'm really excited for today's guest, and here's why. He was the first Canadian-born executive to lead Canadian subsidiary of a Japanese company, Sharp Electronics. He became the youngest ever president in 2008 and has been in this role ever since over 11 years. His name is Carmen Sinerari. We are speaking about Japanese philosophy in business, work ethic, his leadership style, Carmen's mindset during the very tough financial times at Sharp, more in inner routines, and a lot more. You're going to love this one. Here's Carmen. Carmen, thanks so much for joining me here uh, to do an interview. Really appreciate your time. Oh, thanks, Sergey. Good to, good to be with you. So I've heard that you are traveling to Japan about six times every year. <laughs> yes. Uh, do you have any interesting stories about their customer service or customer obsession you haven't maybe shared publicly before? I think um, I haven't been to Japan actually since, um, since the investment of Foxconn into Sharp. The travel to Japan has been somewhat limited, but frankly, I've been to Japan I got all my old passports together and realized I'd been there 50 times to Japan at precisely 5-0, which coincides with my age, incidentally. But um, it, it is an interesting place. And, and you talk about customer service. It is uh, quite funny. There is a story about the Shinkansen, the Japanese bullet train, being so precise that it's, uh, it's to the second in terms of accuracy. And these are things that... Um, in Japan, they take it for granted that that's completely normal. But when you're here in Toronto or other big cities in North America, you really don't expect a train to be precisely coming at 6 p.m. without one second to spare. So that's one example. The other thing is just the competitiveness of that market. Um, the restaurants, the hotels, anything related to the service industry tends to be very um, precise and stringent and the service levels very high. So yeah, it's a it's a it's a place that I respect. Obviously, um, I've been working in Japanese companies for about twenty seven years uh, now. Uh, prior to Sharp, I worked for JVC, which right. is a which is an old uh, brand, I guess by today's standards. But that was a good experience for me to sort of. Uh, get used to Japanese culture and really respect and understand the Japanese culture. And uh, since we are talking about Japanese and their work ethic and competitiveness, who beats uh, Japan? Like, is, is, if you compare Japanese to Germans, who's more precise? <laughs> that is an amazing question, especially for someone that has worked in Japanese companies for so long but drives right. a German car. And I've driven German cars strange, and it's... Um, it's funny, German cars are very precise in their own way too. I just find the design a little bit more utilitarian than Japanese design. Um, both of them actually are quite impressive in terms of industrial design. I just think Japanese are more engineering or are more into maybe a little bit more glitz and glamour versus the Germans that are more focused on functionality. Mm. Um, but yes, interesting how the precision around engineering, uh, design, quality uh, for both uh, both cultures is very high, obviously. Different mentality, but a very similar obsession, I guess. Yes. Um, one of the big things for me in Japanese companies, um, when you use the word quality, a lot of people just associate quality with the quality of, of a product. 
but Japanese uh, management, one of the, the tenants is not only quality of, of engineering, but quality of design, quality of the finished good, quality of the management team, quality of the brand, just overall quality of the complete company and the offerings that it has. Um, so it's a, it's a very um, thorough look at quality, mm -hmm. which was a good, good learning for me. Um, as a young person absolutely early on. It, that that philosophy I'm sure made a big difference especially since you've been in the president role for Canadian subsidiary for over 11 years right it'll be 12 years in April yes right what kept you driven and motivated uh, for so long because that there's this at some point when you get on top of the mountain it's it's hard to keep yourself going forward especially since you were going through certain turbulent times which we'll dive into in a moment that's a great question, and I'm often asked, um, I've been with the same company now for 23 years in April, so at the helm for 12 in April, and it's a long time to spend in one company, especially by today's uh, standards, but it's a bit strange. I'm, I'm in the same company, but I'm nowhere near in the same situation, so the company has evolved, and there's been so many changes externally and internally that it never really feels uh, tiring or boring. Uh, the company has evolved so much. There's been so many changes. And frankly, a lot of the things that I knew from 10 years ago, the value of those things tends to diminish as the technology speeds up and as things change. So it's never become, I've never become stale in the company just for that reason that um, whether it's forceful change from outside or forceful change from inside, the job has always felt different and progressive and growing. So, um, yeah, it's it's been a great uh, ride. The company is is obviously doing much better than than some of the turmoil that right. I went through in years past. Um, but again, there's not a day that is the same as the prior day. It's solving in business the, generally. Sol solving different problems and having that variety that keeps coming at you. Yes, that keeps you engaged. Yes, and 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 in my position, I mean, I have the the good fortune of being able to build a team and being able to make changes to a team and being able to shift uh, directions and strategy and things like that. So really, if if I'm stagnating on the job, I only have one place to look and that's at myself right. in terms of not um, either not allowing myself to keep up with the current trends in the business. And that could have bad repercussions for a lot of people in the company if I if I take my eye off that ball. So. You started in '96, I believe, as a product manager, and then you it got it took you a little bit of time, but then to to be appointed as the the first, uh, the youngest president in 2008 yes. was uh, setting a record on the on your mind, or um, did did that just happen? I, I think um, early in my career when I started working in Japanese organizations at JVC, as an example. Um, frankly, it did expose me to a work ethic that was different than what I grew up with. I grew up in a in a fairly middle class family. My father actually worked for the Toronto Transit Commission here in Toronto for 33 years, and my mom worked for Shell uh, Oil for a lot of years, and then she uh, she raised us also here um, in Canada. Also here in Canada, and. So I came from a pretty conventional, uh, middle-class, nine-to-five kind of upbringing. My dad did work shift work, but it wasn't anything that I'd remember as traumatic. Actually, it was a lot of fun. Mm. Then I get, I get, you know, my first posting in a Japanese manufacturer at JVC when I was in my early twenties, and I'm exposed to 
a totally different world of work where the time of work can be based on Japanese clock or different clocks and there can be video conferences in the middle of the night and there can be reports that are due in the middle of the night and there's faxes at that time coming in at all hours. So it was just a different world, a different work ethic um, and that, that made me hungry to learn, um, to be frank with you. And I, and I was fortunate. I was exposed to some really good, um, I, I don't want to, the word mentor, yeah, they would be mentors, but mm. some of them, frankly, would have been six months. Some of them would have been a year. Some of them have been my whole life. Um, but no one that really, you know, paid a special eye towards me at that stage of my career. Um, after that experience, you know, I, I remember going home to my to my fiance or my wife at the time and saying, you know, this is different than what I know. This is, um, th when I leave the office at 9 PM, there's people here till two o'clock in the morning the next day. So it, it just bred a certain work ethic in me. And when I had the chance to start at Sharp, I was in a fairly junior position, a product manager. And at that time, I was doing products that don't even exist anymore. Mm -hmm. when, 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 when we used to record things on tape, right. VCRs and, and camcorders. I used to have one of those, by the <laughs> <laughs> um, So I started in the organization, and it was completely different. Um, the prior company was a Tokyo-based company. Sharp is an Osaka-based company. So the culture was really different. Um, but I enjoyed it and I was exposed to a lot of things. I had the chance to travel to Japan quite frequently and um, it just gave me a completely different outlook on the world and how big the world is and how, yeah, Japanese engineering, the real background of it and things like that. And I, I had heard these things in the past from different people. Um, even it's different to experience it. Yes, and, and absolutely. And, and I think... Um, I don't really make any distinction anymore between Japan and Canada and the U.S. and other markets where my exposure to some leaders in, in foreign-owned subsidiaries can be that there's always this, of course, there is a, a cultural barrier, but we're really part of the same team. We're really one company. Um, but no, I don't think it was, was necessarily a drive to lead the organization. Frankly, the day it happened... Um, I had literally it, Sharp didn't really. We had a bit of a, of a management succession plan, but nothing that you could really crystallize in terms of timeline. So I had taken some management training with Sharp. Um, it was a combination of uh, about ten days in Japan and about um, one week in Switzerland, um, and then you know uh, I'd say a year or two went by. And my, my, my boss at the time said, hey, let's go out for dinner, you know, Wednesday. It was mm -hmm. a Monday. And I thought it was strange because we really didn't exchange uh, dinner invitations that often. And then he literally told me on the Wednesday that I would be appointed president on the Monday. Um, and I was proud of myself. But in terms of the timing or my desire for that role at the time, I got to be honest, I don't think that was necessarily a thought um, someone, it's a common saying, but kind of the harder you work, the luckier you get. Brian Tracy. Um, yes, I had, I had come off, I had come off some pretty good, um, 
financial performance mm-hmm. in terms of sales and, and market share and brand image and things. Uh, at the time, I was leading the consumer business in Canada, which was a great experience. So I had the chance to experience, you know, record sales, record sort of globally leading market share outside Japan. And this was fantastic. But I didn't really uh, necessarily have that in my mind that, boy, this is going to lead me to the CEO's office. What um, is, um, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned multiple times the work ethic of Japanese. What is their concept behind that? Do you work all the way until you get something done and then you don't stop until you get it? Or there's something different? What is the philosophy of that? One of the things um, that I learned, I think the philosophy is, is around the plan. And sometimes the plan is actually more important than the result. Um, so having, having a thorough plan that has a conclusion is important. And that goes for, um, frankly, I, I know it goes for the restaurant opening in the morning and closing at night or the train leaving the station and getting to the next station at a certain time. But in companies, when it comes to the meetings or the culture or the planning of product there's a pretty concise plan on how to do things and one of the disciplines that i encourage my team and i'd encourage anyone is just around uh, having a plan (laughs) and 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 sometimes it's 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 actually more painful to think about the plan in detail and write it down Um, you know you don't take For example, if you say to someone, you know, picture yourself in five years or 10 years and and almost write an article about yourself in in five years or, I mean, not to get, you know, not to write your obituary, but to write where you want to be or where you want your company to be in five years and really close your eyes and think about it. If, If you can do that in 10 minutes, it would scare me because I think you really need to put some thought into the plan. So, so Japanese management, yes, around... Um, a plan with an introduction and a logical sharing of information. And Japanese management, maybe one of the, the areas of improvement I think you've seen in the last 10 years is, you know, you can't always have forced consensus. At some point, someone is going to have to make a decision. Ideally, um, the, the style would be that you get some type of consensus and people share um, or, frankly, don't necessarily agree 100% with everything but are going to support the direction that, that's being taken. Um, so, so the planning is a big thing mm-hmm. um, that I would take away from, from Japanese management. And that's something that, you know, it's affected me in my personal life. And, and obviously, um, yeah, you have a plan. And, and for some people early in their careers, again, whatever tactic you decide to use if it's if it's electronic or if it's paper or whatever it is um it's difficult to execute things with no plan right um and you gotta i find a little bit of reluctance nowadays for people to document um, things like their vision or their their plan for 2020 it takes the work right right it, it takes work and it takes pain and it takes thought and but once you do it, and, and you know, one of the tactics that I found allows me to handle what I handle or, or to, to sort of be able to take multiple inputs and a lot of pressure from the outside external forces that I may not even be aware of that could be around the corner and the internal other stakeholders that have maybe expectations of me that I don't even know. 
the only solution for me personally is to manage myself really well, to stay organized, to stay planned, to stay disciplined. And, you know, there's going to be times where you might be knocking, you know, knocked off your system, but I'm quick to get back on that system of just staying true to the, what's made me effective up to now. And the pattern, this is the pattern that I've seen with uh, very, very effective leaders. I read Elon Musk biography, a fantastic book. Mm -hmm. And there was this period of time when he was about to go bankrupt with Tesla and SpaceX was not going well, everything was going downhill. And what made him, his performance actually increased and he became a lot sharper and even better uh, while the, everything was going down. And that's exactly what you're saying, which is very, very interesting, is that that philosophy of when things are going worse, you are actually, you get better versus like, oh, you are actually go and complain and, and your performance drops. It's... it's um... It's something that I'm really big on, especially when we're bringing new people into the organization, because typically in a job interview, um, if you follow the cliches, you're going to talk about yourself and you're going to talk about how you exceeded your, your sales quotas and you doubled the profitability and you reduced expense and it's all about you and how you or you were part of a team that did this. And that's fantastic. And in a job interview, I would rarely recommend mm. pointing out your biggest weaknesses or failures. But when you get to my position in life, um, I talk about the depth of a person. So um, for myself personally, I can speak to, yes, record high sales, mm. record high market share, record high profit, um, all sorts of other great metrics that, that would, would make a great byline for, for my career. But then there's also the negative side of going through absolute turmoil. And not, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put myself in the, in the camp with Elon in terms of uh, seeing the brink, but mm. Sharp as a corporation, I'd be honest, I mean, they, they were seeing a brink. And we were a subsidiary of that global enterprise. And it was it was a real test of myself and the management team's mettle to, to sort of steer the organization through that because you're coping with a lot of unknowns that are moving every day. And, mm -hmm. and we live in such a connected world, even in those days, years ago, where the message would be out every morning in the overseas markets about Sharp or about competitors or about LCD manufacturing or solar production or, or whatever the, the negative issue would be. So I think Elon and myself and, and, a, and a lot of people would, would I, I treasure the experience. It's easy to say in hindsight, I'm not sure when I was going through it, that I said to myself, boy, this is going to be awesome uh, 10 years from now that I'm going to feel like a great leader, but I think it is necessary to to grow yourself when you, yeah, when you're looking at your own potential extinction and everything that got you to where you are could go away really quickly. Mm -hmm. um, that is that stimulates parts of your brain that um, don't generally get stimulated when you're enjoying you when know, you say, hyper performance. Right. When you say the moment that you were really proud of, or like for somebody in your position, you say it's a lot to do with depth. Are you referring to situations where you didn't back down or you were going through a turmoil and you didn't uh, ease out on certain things? You actually were able to persevere and get things done regardless of 
the conditions and that what the thing that was really stands out something that we you can refer to back and it's more and in, more interesting than the achievement or the improvement of the quota yeah one one of the th- so great point um and and i think it it speaks to grit and and metal around uh, for example prior to to being appointed uh, president of the company um, I, I I attempted to be extremely transparent with my team, as transparent to to profitability and expenses and exchange rate risks and and whatever. Obviously, simplifying the message down to what's important for the team. But then I I thought to myself, what do you do when the numbers aren't good? Do you abandon that value in yourself and say, hey, I'm going to censor uh, bad news, or I'm you know I contextualize bad news with the future, usually, um, assuming there was, but a lot of times I didn't have enough information. And my, my basic message to, to people in, in, in these roles or whether you're an entrepreneur or whatever, you own it. I mean, if it's not you, that's going to contextualize something, then who's going to do it? So it involved, um, you know, it involved a lot of a lot of nights of being up in the overseas, mm. looking at the markets and seeing what they're doing, and then going, "Oh boy, tomorrow morning you're going to be faced with a couple hundred stakeholders that are going to be wondering, what does this mean for Sharp Canada? What does this mean for Sharp Global?" So, it, when I refer to depth, it's it's the depth of dealing with with hyper growth and hyper competitiveness and, and hyper market share and all that stuff, but also dealing with the real negative things of, of, you know, business challenge where, um, let's say certain metrics, certain financial metrics, you, you wouldn't necessarily be so stringent on in great times. But when, you know, when cash flow or things like that are an issue, your accounts receivable, your inventory, all of those management uh, depth issues for me need to be way tighter than before. And this is um, this is something that you don't really have a license to postpone. You have to deal with it as it comes, literally. Um, Get on another level of performance, essentially, as well, because you're obviously doing a lot of things very quickly as all the people in executive roles but then you actually have to step it up at that at those times yeah and i think um owning them so it's it's great it's funny you mentioned vp and and ceo and the and the difference one of the differences for me is just the the responsibility of contextualizing and communicating that in a to a mass audience is a little tougher Mm. um when i was running a business group i could focus on very narrow objectives related to my business group, not necessarily worrying about the sum total of things. Um, Where now, I mean, going through good times or bad times or or mediocre times or whatever, um, I'm always looking at the total picture, keeping the company whole. Um, And that that was a good initiative that Sharp uh, went on about three years ago was just this concept of one sharp, one family. So we really, mm. we cut down on a lot of the internal bureaucracy, a lot of the internal business groups, even in the naming and just shrinking the amount of uh, executives and things like that, I think was a positive step because at the end of the day, um, you do need to keep the message fairly simple. I mean, people, even in our toughest of times, um, I didn't necessarily want to teach people about finance, but I did want them to understand 
when you read about, uh, you know, working capital mm-hmm. or capitalization or stock price or that, what does that actually mean to us? What, right. what does that mean to you as yeah. an employee, whether you're on the production line or whether you're at the reception desk or whether you're a VP, it's important to contextualize that for Absolutely. people. Absolutely. Just explain the reason why is it, it, how does it tie into their objective to their goal that is a little bit uh, down, down the path. Talk to me about the, so Sharp was experiencing financial losses over a couple of years until Foxconn uh, put the majority or got the yes, majority of stake. 2016. Right. What are some of the steps that you took um, maybe over the years or maybe over a certain period of time, maybe over a specific year uh, that put you on track? Like what are some of the steps that could be strategic the biggest, or so leadership steps? From Canada standpoint and corporate standpoint, it's probably a little different. So a lot of the losses at the corporate level would have stemmed from what I'd call, it's easy to say in hindsight, but a little bit too aggressive investment strategy in certain businesses like LCD manufacturing. So we had opened um, quite large um, LCD manufacturing facilities and then the market got into oversupply and you had price degradation and all of a sudden something that looked good two years ago was not profitable. So the, and then there was other things related to solar business and, and other businesses. So the company got itself into a situation, as you pointed out, that it was recording rather large losses, um, year over year. And then in 2016, um, Foxconn in Foxconn group of companies invested about $3.6 billion into Sharp. So basically recapitalizing the company and people at that, at that time, you know, one of the explanations to the employees when the company's not performing well and the share price is depressed, it's extremely hard for the company to raise capital. And Sharp is a company that has a lot of capital intense businesses, LCD manufacturing, solar manufacturing, things like that. So the company was not in a good position to raise capital. So this this lifeline mm-hmm. that, that Foxconn um, came to Sharp with, um, taking a 66% equity stake, was, was somewhat unconventional for a Japanese company at the time. Um, foreign ownership of Japanese companies wasn't that popular. And to say it was frowned upon it might even be a fair statement. Mm-hmm. So there was some maybe mini controversy about that. But at the end of the day, what that did for Sharp is just stabilize the financial house. So recapitalizing the company, allowing the company to frankly write off a lot of the assets that were dragging the company down and reposition the company to build a structure for earnings going forward. And that's where we are now. If you really look at it, that capital allowed Sharp and and not only the capital, but even the know-how of leveraging um, at that time sharp was approximately reaching you know 28 to 30 billion dollars in global sales Um, foxconn at that time was probably somewhere between 140 and 150 billion billion dollar global enterprise one of the top 10 uh, manufacturers in the world so their scale some of the knowledge and the know-how they brought in terms of global scale was totally different than Sharp. Yes. so it's a combination of that capital and um, the scale of uh, Foxconn now when you bring that down to the Canadian perspective um, frankly our financial house in Canada obviously a lot different scale was not in any type of dire straits but what was a distraction and a and a serious issue because at the end of the day Sharp Canada is a consolidated subsidiary of the corporation was 
this constant looking over your shoulder going, mm-hmm. oh, there, you know, is there more bad news corporately? What, what could be happening here? Um, so for me, it was about just keeping the faith that we're going to get through this. And the, the people that got us here, the people that have ha- achieved record sales and market share, the same people that are going to take us through this little, not exactly bump in the road, but a little cyclical business mm-hmm. issue that happens to the greatest companies in the world. Um, so that that was a discipline that, you know, I got through you know, through myself, but also through advice from, from some mentors saying, Hey, what got you here in terms of your value system, not necessarily your business, uh, success in the past. Cause that, that might not serve you for the next 10 years. It's more about if you feel that people are important and teamwork's important, then don't jeopardize that through tough times, preserve it and keep it healthy. How do you keep your team motivated and engaged uh, and communicating that whatever you they are doing is still important and and kind of isolating them if that's the right word from the things that are co- going in in the in the global uh, in, in those days um, in in really turbulent times we we would do town hall meetings which is somewhat conventional nowadays we're a little bit more omni-channel in terms of town hall electronic digital signage network internally newsletters um, but in those days, it was literally, it could be once a month, it could be twice a month, where um, if I had 30 minutes with the, with the team, I'd spend, you know, I could spend 10 minutes on negative, real, fact-based information. If the company's reporting losses, then it's reporting losses. And that's a fact. But then just reframing that in the Canadian context of, by the way, we're keeping, we're well managing our inventory, we're well managing our, our cash flow, we're well managing all the things that we're doing well that are contributing to the growth or this, the sort of sustainability of the corporation. That was a big tactic that I used at the time. What were the top two, if you were to sum up, uh, and those could be at any point of your career, top two hardest leadership decisions you had to make that jump out? So one of the biggest things for me, and but I, I, I think it's so important, is organizing the company in a way that's conducive to the market outside the company. So one of the, one of the lessons that my team might say exhausts them is when we're inside our office, we're, we're protected. We're, the big bad world is outside the company. And I try and organize the company in a way that's conducive to the climate outside. So that that's meant that a lot of times um, leaders have to make tough choices related to people or to organizing things differently. And, and that's one of the things about keeping the organization fairly flat. And it, it doesn't necessarily mean flat in terms of positions, but flat in terms of ego. Because um, you could have a really good talent for doing what you're doing now. And everyone around you might recognize a talent that you have to be moved over here. Now, that might, that might hurt your feelings mm-hmm. or it might make you feel like you've done something wrong. But it's not always the case. And even for myself personally, um, there's been moves in my career that my ego would have been hurt at the time where I moved from. Uh, where I moved from a, 
you know, a certain category with profile to a category that I considered less profile or I had a, a marketing role and I moved to a sales role or vice versa or whatever. Um, so, so that would be a, a big challenge is, is, is having that uh, so-called power or responsibility of, you know, putting people in positions of success or failure or on the great side, being able to bring people into the organization, new people that you feel are going to add value to the organization. On the negative side, having to extract people from the organization that don't necessarily fit. Um, the other big thing for me that w that might have been a strategic challenge or, or pivot mm. would have been uh, um, moving from most of my career being in, in marketing and planning. And so uh, a good acumen on product planning and pricing and distribution strategies and, and making budgets and dealing with the factory in Japan and then moving into a pure sales role. So taking on, uh, you know, all this planning, planning, yeah. planning, now the execution that just gets executed in numbers, that was a big, uh, I think that was an important uh, thing for me to take on. Um, and, and most of the people that I work with now, you know, that's my encouragement to them. If you've always come up through operations, maybe you want to look at this. Or mm -hmm. if you've always come up through marketing, maybe you want to take a sales role, at least for a short time, to understand what's going on um, outside the company. Um, I think one of the things, um, you know, that, that Sharp is fortunate and, and one of the, the more fun products that we have is these products that allow people to collaborate. And internal collaboration is, of course, tremendously important. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, we're also selling products. So we need to collaborate outside the company more. So a lot of a lot of my encouragement to the team now is to get up, challenge yourself to get out more, get out in the client's face, get out in the market more, talk to people like yourself that are just thinking about things differently. And but get think, a different perspective. Yes, think. absolutely. Get and in outside the bubble. A lot of people, I, I know you have this curiosity and I do too, is how do people think about things? Um, not That's a great yes. asset to have is not so much... Uh, necessarily what tactics did they use but how'd you get there like what were you thinking about at the time um, it is easier to do in reflection um, it's you don't necessarily realize it when you're doing it at the time and then you get to be a certain uh, point where a lot of the things come naturally mm. um, we talked about planning um, I'd be lying to say that I document my day uh, on a piece of paper I don't I have an instinctive way and in my position I have the fortune of being able to to walk around and uh, to meet with people ad hoc and to do things like that and I find now I, I try and leave more time in my calendar for that purpose mm. um, uh, so I have time to give to people that are, you know, either adding value to me or I'm adding value to them or a conversation's warranted. Uh, well, uh, I have a few questions around uh, the routines. I would be very curious to hear your answer. Before we dive in there, is there one thing on a leadership end that you know it's true, but others might not necessarily agree with you on? And this is a Peter Thiel style question <laughs> that I know is true but others might not necessarily agree with you on I was gonna say um, that I, I used to believe that you could fake it I, I, I 
I, there was a saying, I, I, again, I didn't make it, fake it till you make it. Uh, very popular still. Very popular still. And, 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 and I'd be lying to say that I never coached my team or anyone that I was trying to help about the fact that you may not want to smile every day when you come into the office because there could be something in your personal life. You could have spilled coffee on yourself in the morning. There could be all sorts of reasons why you wouldn't smile, for example, or have good body language or good energy. But the responsibility in leadership is you do have to, you do have to be brave. Um, you have to demonstrate. Um, it's amazing to me, and, and I've tested this with multiple people, um, even in, t- it's a silly example, but even in mm. terms of dress code, um, if the leader steps down the dress code, it doesn't take long for everyone in the company to have a different perception of what's acceptable. Well, this is a very big point because, I mean, it. Uh, if you, and I I'm, I love the uh, learning from Navy SEALs and people who are like Jack Willing, and I've learned and what to your point is that the uniform is extremely important because it shows what the person is like and they have to wear the uniform it has to look a certain way and obviously we're not in the military but it is it people look at that yes that that <laughs> not to get into the whole thing about dress codes in the office because as you know it's become pretty loose yeah. and frankly when I started in, in working in, in an office environment, much like everyone at the time, it was, it was very suit and tie. Um, even though we weren't in a bank or an insurance company or a law firm, Japanese companies typically went full business. And then it migrated to no tie, then it mar- migrated to no jacket. And, and even in Japan now, it's migrated to, in some cases, full-on business casual. Um, so that's an example of, of, I guess, modifying the conventional business um, structure, um, but I don't. I don't know. I have mixed feelings. Um, there is something about being uh, demonstrating your pride in your work or your pride in your company, or frankly, your respect of the receiving party. Um, it was. It was a corporate thing for us, and, and it still remains that you want to present yourself in a way that's that presents a good brand image, the same as you'd want your personal brand image, but also your company brand image. Um, so we've we've kind of come. We still have that that common sense in the company, but some of the younger folks that we bring into the company that's a, that's a that's a change. It's different um, because. They're going to go into the world and just just like we're today, there, there is really no standard of business uniform or uh, or business uniformity, period. There's just all sorts of different styles. Uh, and back to the point about staying in the same company for a long time. I mean, when I started in the company, it was pretty conventional. There was no telecommuting. There was no, frankly, there was limited email. There was more faxes. Mm. So you're your work was at work you you worked in the office so if 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 you needed to work till 10 p.m you needed to be in the office till 10 p.m i mean nowadays that's a ridiculous concept there's no need i i live you know 55 kilometers from the office if i need to work till 10 p.m i can go home at six o'clock and and work till 10 p.m or 11 or whatever i feel because i'm always connected Um, so there's there's so many 
I, I often talk to, to my HR leader about just imagining, you know, close your eyes and imagine 10 years from now what type of or what work will look like. Um, that intrigues me too. Yeah, I, there are so different, many different concepts. I'm very interested in this topic as well. And uh, we see more and more companies using the model uh, that is fully remote. Uh, and um, I've also heard like com companies like Buffer, a very well-known uh, marketing company, marketing automation company, everybody's remote, uh, pretty flat structure. I'm not sure exactly how they're able to manage that. And there's another point, I forgot somebody made it, it might have been on Tim Ferriss' podcast, not surprisingly, where somebody said that in the future, the work will be like an Uber type of model where everyone is a freelancer, or if you think of like Upwork, for example, and you take a job or you take an order and you decide you go for it or not, or, or maybe not. And that's how it's going to be structured. But that's obviously thinking quite far ahead. Yes. Um, I'm hoping I'll be retired when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I do. I, I, I fully respect the point that there are certain jobs that that telecommuting and remote working and, and perhaps perhaps 100% freelance is appropriate. Um, when I look at some of the marketing type of work that we do when it comes to creation of digital content or websites or, mm. or whatever, um, there's very successful freelance people that are doing that type of work way more cost effectively than it used to be going to a big agency or things like that. So that would be a good example of um, a fantastic opportunity. Um, when it comes to managing a, a sales team um, or a marketing team, there needs to be moments, I hope, mm -hmm. where there's collaboration. Um, I. I make a distinction between small screen time and big screen time. And, and we, we happen to sell big screen, so I'm, it's close to my heart. But the trend of, you know, an employee sitting down, whether it be at home or in the office with, you know, two monitor PC monitors and maybe one cell phone minimum and maybe another one and then a mm -hmm. desk phone and, and social media, you know, and texting and people being able to reach them at a moment's notice. It's just, there's such a distraction factor. So there's going to be certain jobs, I hope, that still require some level of, you know, you can't be driving and doing them at the same time. You actually need to sit uh, and think and, and maybe write some stuff down. And then I hope get up and, and maybe present it to 15 people that have a stake in what you're working on. Um, so I, I think there'll be a there'll be some type of hybrid between hmm. full on, uh, you know. I think for for us, for example, we're we're in our current location and we've been there for five years and we we have approximately another five years on the lease. And I'm saying to myself, how much space do we need in five years from now? I'm not quite clear on that just yet um, because we've had we've had great examples of remote work that works really well things like mm. marketing materials and right. collateral and that type of creation the only downside is the cultural integration with the team missing so if you're if you're responsible for for example um, internally uh, for example their signage networks internally within companies if you don't physically sit there you don't necessarily see how your content is being 
engaged with or not or how it mm. looks or are people you don't you don't feel the pulse necessarily of the company and in certain roles especially if you want to progress to a leadership position the the pulse of the company the culture of the company is something that um, i'm sure you ask a lot of leaders you mm. know how do you define your the culture sometimes difficult it's it's uh you know i'd say we have a culture of teamwork but he asked for definition of that you feel it you just it's something that 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 you feel in a company and that people tell you about more than you're telling them this is our culture very specific um, to to each organization yes yes and i think a leader from the leader's style tends to form a culture and i think with with sharp canada sharp globally being through um various ups and downs i think people are looking to leadership or management on how do they at the end of the day whether you know these financial provisions and these big write-offs and, and you read about these every day you hear of you know corporate scandals and, and and huge losses and things like this but at the end of the day the employee cares about how does this affect me um so I think how management takes that and deals with the people, that's the most important thing. What, is, what does it mean when the factory closes? The factory closes in terms of the financial part of it is, you know, an asset impairment and a write-off and they report corporate losses and they move on to the next quarter. The bad news is someone has to deal with, you know, 50 to 5,000 people that are going to be out of work or transferred or need retraining. And this is probably... Um, you know, one of the things that's on my mind the most, um, not necessarily as a leader, but just as a human, is just the technology disruption of humanity. Right. I mean, what does that mean in terms of the employment deal? What does that mean in terms of the future of work? Or what jobs are out there for uh, people? Or what are we going to do with all this newfound productivity? You touched on the destruction, and I think it's such a <clears throat> big point, very, very important. Everybody's spending, uh, the attention span is going down. Everybody's spending time on social media, on the phones. And a lot of people complain that it's the technology fault because Facebook and Google they engineered all those hooks. But it's only the surface level problem. It's that there's a deeper problem within the person they're trying to satisfy using a very convenient vehicle that happens to be this technology. What, is your, what are your thoughts on that? And uh, how do you personally focus? I was curious. I agree with you 100%. And I don't think people spend enough time researching how that technology works i mean people it's it's obvious people take it for granted that they need a mobile phone so they get a mobile phone and a lot of them are assigned from their employers a mobile phone but then when it comes to putting a mobile phone or a tablet in front of a child who doesn't necessarily have the wherewithal to resist what's built into the technology in terms of i hate to say it but making it addictive and right. making it that's built into the software um if you're not aware of that, and, and I don't think most parents are well-equipped, and, and frankly, some employers aren't well-equipped to understand that you're fighting a battle against hundreds of thousands of engineers that have built these things into the design of the product. So you have to be careful. Mm -hmm. um, there, there, there might, uh, to think that companies would, would have to employ policies, I mean, I, I think 
I mean, it's old news. Volkswagen was a company that, that shut off the email server, for example, beyond five o'clock. But I don't think email's fundamentally the problem now. It's, it's the other stimulation that people have where, I hate to say it, but if, you know, if you need milk and eggs, your, your husband or wife can you know, send that to you and, and you'll know about that. And, that, and we, we know from research that that's a distraction that takes you away from what you're doing for 15 minutes as you regroup and get your mind off the, the milk and the eggs. So for me, it's, it's really, really uber consciousness of distraction and the value of thoughtful time. Mm. Just being mindful of, I mean, the older I get, the more mindful I, I am of my work and my, you know, the importance of people in my work, the importance of relationships in my work, and the importance of having everything. To say it's in balance is, is kind of a misnomer because mm. I don't think that uh, balance implies that you're, you know, you're constantly in this thing of trying to keep everything perfectly balanced. There's going to be times when your work may consume you and that's a necessity to get you through a period and then that's okay get over yourself it's um you know nothing great comes without sacrifice um there's a lot of uh, early in my career when i was you know working a lot and traveling a lot that was it, it it doesn't necessarily coincide in your personal life with the greatest timing that was when i had a young child my first child and and there's yeah, there's absolutely collateral damage in, in your work, but I don't think it's something that you don't recover from and that you're, even your, your kids wouldn't respect you for saying that wasn't as bad as you thought it was. We I, I was going to use the word balance, but mm -hmm. we, we fought through it and we had uh, grit to get through it. So. It goes back to the planet, actually, the concept yes. of actually decide, deciding and then saying, uh, this is what I'm going to do and then testing it out what about your personal approach to to getting rid of distractions let's say on an average day what are some of the steps that you would take to be able to get the work done and maybe distance yourself uh, from things that you shouldn't be necessarily i'm getting better engaged. at it now because um as as i have the fortune of working with great people and hiring great people and and mentoring great people I can start to distance myself a little bit from the micromanagement in the company, um, but I like to stay close to the action. I always like to keep, but I find I leave more time in my calendar for just people to, to talk to me, including things like this, where I can just talk to people and exchange ideas. And frankly, one of the things that I wouldn't do very well when I was younger um, is etch time for reading, just or it, 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 reading on the internet is, is okay, but actually picking up a book or listening to a podcast or while you're exercising, listening to something inspirational, um, the power you realize that you have that's untapped is, is quite uh, effective. I, I, again, it sounds selfish, um, but I just don't allow myself to get out of my zone. I, I can be knocked out of my zone by uh, tragedy or something, but I can quickly get back into it just because that's what keeps me sane. Um, if I need to, if I need to do something at, uh, last minute, I'm organized enough that I can gather my stuff together in, in a reasonable time and, and just refocus and, and get out there. But I, I think um, 
I'm a little bit close to, because distraction's a big mm. thing for me and I'm interested in it, so I try and absorb as much as I can about it. And again, I didn't really give the technology enough credit for how powerful it is. And then you look around and you see maybe people that are close to you and you see the potential of how the, 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 the mind gets distracted so easily. And people, um, you're talking about one thing and then you move on to something else so quickly and the attention span of people's getting so short. And then on the real, you know, unfortunate side is, you know, taking a family vacation where, for example, you don't buy the Wi-Fi package or you don't buy the wireless package and you're just absolutely in the zone enjoying your kid's time or something. And you look over and you see you know, a couple on their honeymoon that are both on their mobile device, not talking at a table. So, uh, so common. It's so common and so socially acceptable, I suppose, but also fundamentally disturbing because it's very difficult to have a relationship like that. Um, I understand. I don't really like the term new normal, but it's mm. It is, uh, again, socially acceptable. Whether that's good for relationship building or, or humanity remains to be seen. I think w people need to have, people need to do some research and some homework to understand what they're up against, too. Um, I want to switch the topic and uh, bring up the, the last point that you, uh, that you said, uh, being in the zone. Um, I, I read there's a great book uh, uh, written by the former Michael Jordan trainer uh, and he talks a lot about how the players would get into the zone and, and you have to, to to get into this uh, very very high performance mode what do you do personally to get in there is there any specific things that you do especially now um, I don't for example I'm not a slave to my email uh, one I'm a zero inbox person. So whether if I'm on a business trip or vacation or speaking engagement or whatever, there is very, it's very unlikely that I will have messages that aren't dealt with in my inbox. For so I, I, I just refuse to become a slave to email. Um, I, I don't, I don't brag about how many emails I get. I don't think that's a sign of my productivity. I actually try and isolate that to, to, to being, just being organized. So nowadays, especially in the, last, um, in the last year, I tend to be a lot earlier riser than mm -hmm. I've ever been. I read this book called The 5 a.m. Club. That's a great and, um, not, and it's funny, I didn't, I didn't implement it right after I read the book, but then it just happened... Um, where I, I, I made a realization that to be a, a, a better a better person, I'm a healthier person, I needed to incorporate more exercise into my life. So I said, when can I fit it in? And the, the most natural time was just frankly extending the, the day a little bit longer. And that day came, the car vote was in the morning. So now I'm up usually at, you know, quarter to five and I'm in the gym at 5.30 and I'm in a zone of um, no distraction. I'm, I'm focusing on my day. Uh, by that time of the morning, I've usually dealt with my emails and things like that, either by filing mm -hmm. them away to be dealt with when I get to the office. And if there's anything, um, and that's the time of day too, when, when employees um, are giving me updates on their schedule and things like that. But when I'm, when I'm in the zone, I'm not really paying attention to that. And when I'm ready to, to deal with it, I deal with it. Um, so yeah, I just find, mm -hmm. um, you know, advice wise and, and, 
is being in control of of all as uh, all facets of your life i mean mm-hmm. you can't uh, i've again not not to focus on this balance thing but uh, there are periods in my life that I, i'm not sure i'd say i regret them now but just where the the pendulum was so far swung to work orientation that it comes at sacrifice of a lot of other things including maybe your health or your mental health or whatever where you got to get to a point where you've not necessarily that those will always be in perfect harmony but at least you're in control of them uh your personal finances your relationships your your spirituality or whatever uh method you use there those things are that that creates the whole person and i couldn't fathom um leading people without that full view of yourself because um when you look at yourself in the mirror in the morning and you're you're fortunate enough to be in a position to to lead people you you have a you know a somewhat grave responsibility in that yeah. sense so you, i take it pretty seriously uh, so you, leader controlling the leader leader leading the leader right. is a big deal do you for to be focusing on those buckets that you mentioned that are super important actually for the life balance and for the way you feel for to have a certain level of energy do you allocate a certain time uh, to it uh, what 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 what, what do you find gr- that's a great question um and i found especially recently i read so much about about nutrition and exercise and meditation and and distraction and technology and things like that and my natural inclination as a business person and as a planner and mm-hmm. a japanese uh, raised in a japanese sort of management thing is to 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 make a documented plan like i just have to write this down but i found my my obsessive sort of focus on just what's important has just naturally created the way i am the, the schedule i am so i didn't i don't think it was it was it was very conscious about maybe where i had gaps in my life where i said hey i really should fix this because this could be you know it might not be a fatal flaw now but it's sure going to be a lot harder to correct this when you're 60 or 70 or 80 so i i just um I just dug into saying what my schedule on a daily basis should look like. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't if you look at my outlook calendar you wouldn't find me blocking off thinking time and lunch time and this time and that time. I use a few um apps for mm-hmm. my eating and, and and my health and things like that, but nothing nothing that I find uh too strenuous and nothing that I impose on others where I have um i i don't actually have maybe a little strangely i don't have um so called you know don't talk to me times mm-hmm. in my calendar whether that's um you know my my team now generally knows what my personal schedule is um and now with remote connectivity i'm i'm reachable 24 hours a day but during the day i tend to be pretty flexible on uh time and getting especially time with my own team time with clients or time with uh outside stakeholders i can usually always modify my schedule to meet that you're naturally good at actually making sure you're going to hit on on the balance level on yes. on on the work on the finance on spending time with the family so i guess that's why you don't really you're not hardcore if if, if yeah. like it's funny you say naturally cuz cuz again i i thought th- there's so many good 
tools and so many good books and so many good podcasts and just so much information available that if you if you listen to it and read it and 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 repeat and and just really delve into it again depending on your stage and the stage of life you're at it does become natural um it becomes completely um you almost wonder how you didn't know this when you were 28 or 38 or even for myself 48 um and i wish i had known that And, and that's something that I find passing on technical business tactics or marketing tactics to a younger generation, it's okay, but those things could be extinct, actually. A lot of those things may be may die. A lot of the conventional marketing approaches now with mm. you know, online marketing mm. and digital marketing, everything's t- completely different. But it's more the thought process and the way to sort of manage yourself it's the principles that's right that keeps that's probably not probably but the most important thing so in in terms of even myself with my kids i can't teach them the technical side of finance and by the way they're they they can they i hate to say it but they can watch a lot of things that are free content they can watch mit lectures for goodness sakes um that are done by people a lot smarter than me but the the thing is implementation in your life and where that fits in your life and in terms of keeping all those buckets uh, healthy is the most important thing. Are you doing anything specific in the evening before going to bed? Any any specific steps, or you you leave it pretty open? What I what I do, <laughs> oh boy, um, I've gone through periods of uh, I, I'd be lying to say not mild addiction. I think the U.S. political uh, um, environment led to a little bit of mild. I, I'm going to call it fascination. So I was I found my I found myself spending a little bit too much time doing that. So now one of my rituals is getting the phone or the electronic devices away from the bedside. Mm. So I I do I do have them in the bedroom which is which is against my general rule, but they're far enough away and they're not on any type of mode that they would disturb. I, yeah, like I do I do have some responsibility for the mm you know, for the building and the facilities. So I, I do keep the phone on, but it, it doesn't, if, if it's ringing, it's really bad news. So, the, so there's no risk of that. Right. And I, and I turn the email notifications off. So, so I'm getting better at just that routine of bedtime is bedtime and distancing myself. So I find even now with the, with the improved focus on, on my health, um, my sleep comes a lot quicker. So mm. uh, the TV goes off, the electronic devices are away, and away you go. You go into your slumber, and that extra one hour or 90 minutes of slumber makes you so much better the next morning at 5 o'clock in the morning when you're able to exercise and get right. to the office and perform at a different level. 90 days or 90 minutes of not actually looking at the screen, kind of preparing for yes. the time. Yes, I'm... I'm I don't know if I could commit to 90 minutes, but I surely don't. I, I'm completely out of the habit of reading email in bed because <laughs> I just think that's not a good thing. Right. Um, I can't speak to everyone. I mean, again, it's completely acceptable, socially acceptable. Children have their PCs and their tablets and their phones in their room, and I'm not so naive to think that um, they're not doing that. 
I'm hoping that as as we get more information out there about maybe the downside of doing this, or or maybe technology will solve it. I'm optimistic too. As much as we're talking somewhat negatively about the the distraction factor, on the optimistic side, I say, hey, if if brilliant people can can addict people to <laughs> Candy Crush, yeah. maybe we can get them addicted to 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 education or maybe we could get them addicted to really tremendously productive things um so i'm optimistic that um you know the the next generation my kids generation they're they're going to solve some of these problems and and there are a lot of super smart people who can do that i mean apple took the first crack with uh uh, ios 13 uh and digital well-being and google's following them uh and it looks pretty good like i I, that goes to your point where people kind of understand the problem on the surface level but if you you can go into the settings and and turn off everything and you can set the time limits on each application and the phone will do it for you automatically so you can be a lot further ahead but you actually have to do it yes. so it's there's no way to go around that yeah that that and it's funny you say that because even even on trips to japan i'd say even 10 10 year more than 10 years ago the whole the whole um, fitness device trend was kind of at its infancy where in japan i mean they go to a bit of a the nth degree but they had you know health chairs and health devices that you could monitor some of your more important health vitals where now that's it's ubiquitous but it's not we still need people to strap these things on and and download the app or follow what their phone can actually do on the positive side because you're right i mean your iphone for example the amount of health metrics that are there it's 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 incredible and then at ces this year there were manufacturers showing wearable products even undergarments that monitor vital uh measurements for your body i mean going to your doctor with that type of data or even arming yourself with that type of data it's so amazing but it just needs to become completely seamless in our lifestyle it's going to happen i I think it's surely going to happen i think um, the more that perhaps the medical system and other education Mm. system it's going to be gut-wrenching change for them because it's different. But the, once they promote these type of things, for sake of argument, why isn't everyone Absolutely. doing this? Uh, it's, a funda- it's a fundamental great question. I mean, uh, I've heard that you know some insurers, for example, health insurers are actually issuing, you, you know, mm-hmm. um, for example, a health-related device right. to, to employees. And I think it's a great idea. Because at the end of the day, distraction aside, it's it's really about mindfulness. It's about knowing what you're doing. And the more data you have to support the fact that you're lying to yourself, you're not in, in, in great shape, your your heart is beating too much and your blood pressure is too high right. and your cholesterol is too high and, and all this other stuff. If technology can can bring that to our minds, hey, that's... I, so So again all the negativity aside of, of the, the downside of, you know, being distracted and things like that. And, and we blame the technology. The technology upside is also tremendous. I mean, when we, 
again, we, we sell these big collaborative displays. And when you see a team rallied around a display and annotating a document and trading it with someone in an overseas market in real time, this is, this is really amazing use of technology compared to when I started my career. You'd literally have a meeting, write meeting minutes, fax them to the other person, and then they could annotate them and send them back. I mean, now you think it's totally ridiculous. So the upside of the technology is absolutely tremendous. It's just getting people to that point. The usability factor. um, Even, you know, it is a struggle. Even even in the business world, Mm. because the personal... You know, the, there's no real distinction anymore. The consumer market bleeds into the B2B market and it's it's the market. So if people are used to um, interacting on small screens, it, it's a challenge to get them up. Um, and, and, you know, they're not used yes. to that. So that's a fight that's going to happen, but it's, it's definitely worth happening. And as you said, some of the big high techs in the United States, and, and Microsoft's a good example, they realize this trend, mm-hmm. but more and more they're going to integrate things into their software that's going to yes. be get up, do something, here, take action on this information, whether exactly. it be health or how you're spending your time and things like that. So, Yeah, we're very uh, uh, optimistic on that. Are there any books that you bought uh, and gifted the most? Uh, and uh, those could be on the, on, the, on the psychology business or any topic that uh, My favorite out. business book is probably Good to Great by Jim Collins, which is a bit of an older book now. Um, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century I mm-hmm. just recently read. And I don't, we, we said we'd get off the negativity. That one's a little terrifying if you're not ready for, <laughs> I'm not for, yet. for all that. okay. Uh, but I do recommend it's a tremendous read. Um, a lot of it around technology disruption and what that means um, for all of us in terms, in terms of everything we do. Um, again, people, and it's completely normal in, in the, you know, ultimately, most people are consumers of technology. So they, they look at the technology somewhat at the surface. As you pointed out, there are so many tremendous tools in the technology that people don't use that could really help them too. So the book, that, that's one of my favorite recent ones is 21 Lessons mm-hmm. for the 21st. But Good to Great is more about companies that, so the, the author sets a, a parameter of, I believe it's 15 years of consistent sales mm-hmm. and profit performance, and then tries to benchmark companies against each yep. other and chooses great companies. And I just found that a great read. And I can't remember when I read it, but just about the systems and processes that the, the author was able to identify in companies that they all shared that got them to greatness. Um, and one of the things for me is is that flywheel mentality. Mm-hmm. So I often use that in, in talking to my team about just keeping that flywheel moving through difficult times and through, you know, through good times and bad times, keeping it moving. Um, and we will link it in the show notes below so everybody can go and grab it. Those are, I haven't read the, tw- uh, the 21 lessons, but that sounds real exciting. <laughs> yes. Where's uh, everybody can find you online? So the, the best place to reach out to me personally would be on LinkedIn. Just find me on LinkedIn, Carmen Cerari. And for more information about Sharp, if you're interested, you could go to sharp.ca. And we'll uh, we'll link it below. I think you're you're getting uh, more uh, into the uh, TV business, which is exciting. We need more players there besides <laughs> LG and Sony, uh, and that will be really interesting to watch. 
last question, what impact would you like to make with the work you're doing? So the impact, my, my big thing now, especially in the, you know, I've been working for a long time and I, and I hope to work for a, 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 a longer time. Um, it's the development of people. I think um, as much as I'm stimulated by business strategy and financial performance and things like that, I really think my job ultimately is to make people better. And whether that, this is funny to say, but whether that contributes to the performance of the company that I'm working for, Sharp, that's fantastic. But I also like to look at people as a whole being. And, and some of them, I, I'm not so naive to think that if we hire a 28-year-old person that they're going to necessarily be at Sharp for another 30 years. So if I can make them better for the time that they spend in the company, um, that really is stimulating to me. That's, that's the impact that I'd like to have. If, you know, in my retirement speech, I would hope that that would be something that people say, hey, um, Carmine's a person that took an interest in me or Carmine's a person that gave me this piece of advice that was mm -hmm. meaningful and impacted me. Um, so I find myself now um, being in the in the fortunate position that I am of 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 uh, intervening a lot on people when even if they're there it doesn't it's not necessarily an age thing but some people that have been really successful and gotten to a point and then wonder why things stop or they hit a ceiling or, or it's just being able to intervene and maybe reframing things mm. in a way that they never um, a lot of times you don't get that type of reflection necessarily from your employer or frankly from your spouse or from your friends or whatever a lot of these things can be very uh, difficult in the, in the, you know if, if they're just mild things or advice that I'd like to give as we talked mm. about people just researching more don't just read the first google hit that you get there might be a great book that's on a piece of paper. Now you can download. It's I've gone mm, full circle yeah. on this. I w I became an ebook guy for convenience on airplanes and things like that. It's a lot easier than carrying a 600-page book. The only downside is your tablet comes with a built-in distraction. So you have your email and you have yeah. other things on your tablet. So I've gone I've gone to the system where I'm I have a mobile book and I have a book at home that I'm actually reading. So I kind of go between the two. Um, but yeah, I find myself now my biggest, the biggest impact for me is, you know, whoever it is being able to say I've really had a positive mm -hmm. impact on that person. And what's interesting is that uh, you, you kind of touched on it. Everybody wants the roadmap, which first doesn't exist. And the second is there's no usually one answer or there's, there's no one book or one blog or one conversation or one piece of advice that's going to do whatever the person wants it's just the combination and like you said it's just just keep doing that and the combination of things will bring you there versus everybody wants this one magic move yes. that rarely exists i wholeheartedly agree and i think one of the things maybe if i reflect on the advice i've gotten through the years and i try and be better at this is it doesn't come without pain <laughs> Whenever there's change or whenever there's effort required, and as we talked, many people reach a stage in their lives where they're, they're as happy as can be, and that's fantastic. So when someone comes to them and say, hey, I need you to disrupt this party, you're, you're not reading enough, or you're not exercising enough, or you're not paying attention to this enough, 
it hurts and a lot of people don't like that um but it's the only way the hard part i say this is where we live it's naive of me to say that my i wouldn't encounter thousands more changes in my life for the next 25 30 years it's there's no predicting tomorrow's situation for anyone so it's really just about being adaptable and flexible and curious to keep learning Um, but that is uh, i think as an employer somewhat sometimes counterintuitive because people do rise to a level of of their competence and and then you say to them hey why don't you think about this or why don't you think about that or why don't you read this and it takes them out of their comfort zone and that sometimes involves pain and some people the tolerance for that isn't isn't uh, high enough so they abandon it when it can really get them to the a promised place i can really get you there but you got to go through this little bit of pain to get there um and i don't you know i, I don't know if that was thrust upon me i think it might have been a little bit of survival too because knowing that um there's as you said there there's there's literally tens of thousands of outlets you could go to books or podcasts or youtube videos or ted talks that that just give you different insights and they're all different but there's an essence of them that's the same and when you reflect on yourself I mean, the most important things is you you took the effort you were curious enough no one needed to tell you hey that would be really interesting it's just put down twitter for 10 minutes and spend um, I heard a stat where mm. you were saying that people, I don't know if this is true, by the way, but people read 100,000 words a day, including all their social media mm. and, and, and their online you know, browsing of the news. Um, and they said if you could literally take that and just read you know, 5,000 or, or I don't know what the number was on a paper in a, in a book, the experience and the knowledge and the retention is totally different. And everybody knows this, but it gets airplay for about, you know, a day and then it goes away and people go back into the bad habits. So I think to build a habit is, is really important. Whether, you know, addicting yourself to self-education, great. Probably the best habit you'd want to addict yourself to. Addict, we, we know we can addict ourselves to negative things. And that, that intrigues me to no end because we, we know, I mean, a little bit of mild experience mm. in this is we know we can addict ourselves to negative things. So obviously we can addict ourselves to anything, whether it be exercise or, or just mindfulness or continuous education. So it's, it's possible. And, I, and I'm optimistic. I think um, there is a lot of smart, curious people out there that want to solve a lot of these things so so i think um i'm hoping that is you know <laughs> content such an issue you need to keep producing content that people have to migrate from i think um time better spent on on more productive things and it just it's just a process and, that, and that's right. the advice i give people is just be mindful of carve out if you say you can't carve out 20 minutes of your day to read something that, or to listen to a TED talk. I don't, I don't buy it. I just don't, I do not buy it. I, it would be the equivalent of, of a subordinate of mine saying that they couldn't talk to another person in the company for 
10 minutes for two weeks because they're too busy. That, that just doesn't, that just doesn't sit with me. Cause I would always right. use the analogy that if there's an emergency, you'd find 10 minutes. So just find it. It's important. I like to I like this analogy where a lot of uh, coaches and business coaches say, uh, "If I had a gun to your head, would you have time?" Yes. And what it really does, and it's it's a probably very uh, simple and maybe not necessarily relevant example, but it does make people focus on what's really important, and they they've got time. Versus when somebody doesn't have twenty minutes of their time in the day, usually what it means they don't have their priorities right. Yes, uh, I, and. Uh, I heard that one too. I'm just reluctant to introduce guns into the workplace, but I use fire as in fire is just as bad. But I say, if, if I can't find 10 minutes to speak to Sergey uh, for two weeks, what, if, what if there was a fire? Would I, would I find the 10 minutes to, to, or someone had an accident or something? We, we would absolutely. And, and I, sometimes you learn this through, frankly speaking, you do learn it. I can speak for myself personally. I had a, I had a death, my, my father passed away and I had all sorts of business priorities at the time. Actually, when he first got sick, I was overseas and I got a call, a, a totally abnormal call. I mean, I, I would, my wife would never, ever, ever call me in Japan. And I got this call and it's a personal story, mm. but all of a sudden, all of my priorities priorities got reprioritized and i you know i you know nobody nobody died the, the the company sustained itself and my team got to step up in a way that was special to me and i'm it's so it's such a thing that you got to recognize that too mm. um and and my job really is to build a sustainable organization so god forbid if I did need to, to take a vacation, the company sustains itself, it's fine. Or God forbid I had a personal incident that I needed to take a day off, that the, that's the magic in an organization. Having the things revolve around you, that, that's, um, it's a misnomer, it's not, right. it's not true. To, to say, um, again, uh, probably like you, I don't accept this, there's not 10 minutes in a day. Um, there, there is 10 minutes in a day. And that's why I guess the medical profession should probably leverage technology more right. because I was like that too. I was always too busy to carve out, you know, 30 minutes for a walk, you know, and it's the doctors yeah. are saying, just walk, like just walk. And you're just like, no, I'm too busy. Well, doctors will say you will die on the job and they'll bury you and, and on your tombstone, perhaps they'll say he was too busy. Um, that's the worst example. Um, so, so yeah, I, I fully, I fully on that program. Uh, Tim Ferriss in his book, four hour work week, he has this very similar framework. He asks this question, if somebody had a heart attack and the doctor told them you can only work two hours in a day, what are you going to do? <laughs> have another heart attack <laughs> and and he, he he makes the same example so he doubles it down he says if you had another heart attack and you were only allowed to work two hours in a week what would that be and it's just that type of question it's that framework uh, and it's similar i think you referred it to one other point you made in the conversation if you were 70 or 80 years old uh, would you re regret not doing or not learning or not taking this thing? Uh, and that's just a, such an important one to make a better decision. Know that, oh, actually, I should be doing that. Yeah. And, and it, it, I wish, and, I, and again, I, I was extremely fortunate in the sense of being exposed to so many great people. Like I, I literally, I, I attempted to make a list one day of 
all of the Japanese managers, for example, that I had exposure to with in my career. And I came up with 35, and I don't think I was fully finished, right? Mm -hmm. And every single one of these people, they might not have known it at the time. For sure, they wouldn't know it. They might not even remember who I was, but they gave me a little bit of impact. So Mm -hmm. I'm asking myself, um, and I would challenge most business leaders in this sense, um, you know, my kids are going through through school. One of them's in university now. One of them's graduating high school. And, it, you know, all they're being told is you got to do something in the future. And nobody, you know, parents aren't well equipped to decide on a yes. career path for kids. And, and, and frankly, it's hard for us to even comment on what the job will look like in five years. So why not expose or give these kids opportunities to intern or to do things in companies or to talk to business leaders and just for what the two cents is worth, um, the way to think about things. Uh, again, I think the, the, they're much smarter. The kids are much smarter. They have access to way more information. It's just the process of how they manage their life with all this stimulation and knowledge and, and technology and things like that. So. Carmen, it was a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys, for listening. One thing before you take off, if you have suggestions, who I should interview next, or do you have any questions maybe I should be asking my guests, I'd love to hear from you. Drop me a note. I've got my email and LinkedIn in the show notes, so you can do so. I will see you all in the next interview. That one is particularly special. Stay tuned.